Hello. Hi. How's it going? I'm good. Um, good. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, not too much. Um, just got back from a run and the elf is back. So <laughs> had to stop and get, I got her like a Disney princess or what am I saying? A Barbie um, like advent calendar that the elf brought. So she's coming after school and she's going to be thrilled. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't really been doing too much. I have been doing a lot of tutoring lately, actually. That's good. Um, yeah, reading some Plato as well. But you always got to return to Plato. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about our trip to London. Uh, I know. I'm so excited. Are planning a trip. <laughs> yes, we're going to London. I can't wait. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know. I'm actually, I'm really excited. I was telling uh, Julian's mom, she called me recently. I'm really excited to go uh, with your daughter because I feel like there are a lot of fun things to do, like mostly for kids that I would never just like go to on my own, you know, but it's like right. fun to live like vicariously through. <laughs> right. And it gives you an excuse like, to go do it. experience it with a kid, you know, I think like a yeah. good example is like that petting zoo. Like I wouldn't yes. necessarily go to that petting zoo we went to alone, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. She gives you a good excuse to like get to go do some things that you would want to do, but like, you're like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think part of the reason is because like everyone there has a kid and I don't have a kid and they're probably just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's funny yeah no it's so funny because when I told her you know how we're, okay so for the listeners I went to visit Brandon in California um a couple of months ago and I told her that I was going and she wasn't coming it was literally just for three nights she was with her dad for the weekend but I told her that I was going <laughs> to California to see Uncle B and she said mom it's always been my dream to cal- go to California I can't believe you're not taking me <laughs> <laughs> and I was like just laughing so hard because I'm like girl what do you mean it's your dream like you don't even know California <laughs> anyway <laughs> I told her we were gonna go to England and she said mom she's like where's England they said well it's another country and you know we're gonna see a bunch of different things Harry Potter's like there and she's like okay but it's still my dream to go to California <laughs> <laughs> she's just so like I'm like girl <laughs> like okay <laughs> so funny yeah, no, oh, I, think, I think she'll even like the the flat because Julian's grandma decorated it, it like with like all these maps everywhere and there's like clutter all over the walls and stuff like I think oh. <laughs> someone uh, on the Airbnb described it as like visiting Sherlock Holmes apartment. And I was, like, <laughs> That's, <kinda true. laughs> That's funny. No, I'm like seriously thrilled. I have to like really sit down and like I definitely definitely want to go to Paris obviously and Pern was telling me that like it's a you know a train right away um so I definitely want to do that obviously like I feel like we have to if we're that close yeah and I've never been there because when I went it was during the height of COVID and so I wasn't allowed to like none of the other European countries wanted anyone from the UK especially because the day I arrived the UK actually declared it was freedom day and just like you know pulled to Florida and decided to pretend COVID didn't exist oh no so at that point all the other countries were like <laughs> stay away if you've been in the UK <laughs> yeah that makes sense no but I'm so excited I can't wait to hear all the accents and like I love it because it's still obviously English speaking so it's not like I'm stressed about the language because I feel like that honestly is what prohibits me from going to like other places because I just feel like I don't want to go there and like be stressed about you know not speaking their language but so I'm I'm pumped yeah yeah I want to see Oxford because I didn't get to and I think you know 
it's the castleiest of all the castle universities. It's the it's the yeah. one that all the other ones are trying to emulate. So right. at least like the architecture will be cool. Is I that, think, did you apply for there? I did. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. So and wait, we'll know by then if you got we'll in. No. Yeah. Oh my we'll gosh. <laughs> so um, if you got in, that'd be so much fun. Yeah. And if I don't get in, then it's like, well, I might as well go check it out. Like, <laughs> since I'm not yeah. going there. I mean, the fact that you even felt like that you could even apply there is still an accomplishment because like not anybody's just going to go apply to Oxford. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, I'm hoping I get in somewhere better. Not that Oxford isn't good or anything, but Oxford is um, a master's program because you can't apply to a PhD directly in the UK if you're from the US. So I would, if I do go to Oxford, it will be because I didn't get into any PhD programs. Oh, well, so, well, but you already did, right? No, I only got into the one, I only heard back from one and I only got into the one master's in London, which oh. is actually like a 15 minute walk from where we'll be staying. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, and I anyway. think, would you want to see Stonehenge? Do what you know that? Stonehenge? Stonehenge is like, I don't know, you might, if you looked it up, you'd recognize it. It's like that thing with, uh, you know, it's all the rocks in the circle. <laughs> you have to look it up. You have to see what it looks like. Yeah, I'll definitely look it up. Sorry, I'm like dying over here. Yeah, I mean, nobody really knows what it is. It's kind of the mystery, but it's like this prehistoric construction of these giant rocks in like a perfect circle. And, it, you know, has like astronomy significance. But anyway, it's like it was um the home screen, the default home screen for like Windows computers for a while. It's sort of like the pyramids, oh, nice. ancient. Yeah. I mean, pyramid. honestly... There's not much that you're going to say, like, hey, do you want to go see this? And I'm going to say no. Like, I don't think yeah, that I'm yeah. going to like It's like one no. of the seven wonders of the ancient world sort oh, of cool. deal. Um, yeah, no, I'm ex I'm seriously really excited. I know I just keep saying that, but um, oh, shoot. Oh, I was going to say I'm excited because I'll get to probably do some runs. And I mean, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to do some runs in that area. So that'll be cool maybe you can run a bike and come ride with me like <laughs> yeah just be really careful you will get lost if like don't let your phone die the city makes no sense it's not like a normal city european cities are labyrinths i'll plan so. it out before i go and i'll put it on my yeah yeah, yeah. no way i'm trying to get lost in <laughs> <laughs> and um <laughs> my 15 mile run will turn into a 25 mile run <laughs> Well, and it's like a really heavy drinking culture. So I was telling Julian, like, oh, it'll be fun to go with you guys because we can go like to like the taverns and stuff. And Julian was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to get alcohol poisoning because <laughs> Julian always tries to keep up with you guys. You know, That's so funny. I love it. Is he coming? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, I think I mean, he has to like take vacation days off, but I think he'll be able to come. So yay. That's exciting. Um, so anyway. I like yeah, I feel oh. like there's something else that I wanted to mention before we got started, but I can't now I can't remember and it'll probably come to me halfway through. But, you know, here we are. I feel like I still sound so nasally. <laughs> <laughs> I sound so sick. Anyway. Okay. Are we doing the sexuality one today? We are. Yay. <laughs> so we're talking about Michel Foucault. Uh, he was born in 1926. He died in 1984. He is French. Um, he's definitely, I think, probably often considered one of the most just like important, if not the most important thinkers for, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on what it's called. I want to say social studies, sociology, Jesus Christ. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why like, I don't stop know saying social going. studies? I mean, it's basically that, like sociology. Anyway, yeah. um, yeah, so he is a super important thinker. He is kind of like one of the token POMOs. Like, um, you know, you might hear people talk about postmodern thinkers. It's definitely very much him. 
post-structuralist, I think might be a more apt description of him, even though I think he likes to employ structures a lot. Uh, Foucault was a notable gay man. He frequented, I think I told you about this in the last the last meeting, uh, he frequented uh, like BDSM clubs and uh, there's like an old joke that he brought fisting to France. That's not really true, but people like to say that about him. <laughs> Can you imagine like you do all this work in life and then you're just known for bringing fisting to France? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, uh, he actually unfortunately ended up passing away due to AIDS, which you might guess based on the fact that he died in the 80s as a gay man. Um, So, I mean, that sucks. But he, uh, I guess, like, just like a little biographical note about him, he sort of, I think, initially struggled to figure out how he wanted to, to do his work. Like, he was, you know, obviously brilliant, very promising student, that sort of thing. And he wasn't exactly sure, like, what sort of format fitted him or, like, the best outlet or avenue for putting his ideas out there. And so there's this sort of story where he is studying Nietzsche, actually, the um, and in particular, the genealogy of morality. And Nietzsche uses this method that, you know, we could spend a whole session talking about called the genealogical method, which is a basically, I'll say quickly, is a way of doing philosophy by telling a historical story or by tracing a line of events. Now, it's important to note that this history is complicated because it's not necessarily a historical project. It's not like they're trying to just do history or tell you like everything that's necessarily like true or not true. That doesn't really come into the question, but rather they're trying to explain the way, like trying to explain something about the way in which we think or about the structure or form of our ideas by telling you a story that invokes the past and by sort of tracing a development to, uh, on the one hand, I mean, you could say that it shows you the sort of um, developmental structure inherent in each of the concepts or ideas that you talk about, but that might not necessarily be correct. I don't know. It's it's sort of a complicated a complicated methodology that on the surface just looks like he's telling you like history, but it's not exactly history. And so Nietzsche and Foucault both will, you know, maybe tell things that like, well, like, or maybe like describe things in a way that would make a historian be like, well, actually, but they're not really necessarily (laughs) interested in telling you a precise history. They are sort of selectively telling you a narrative in order to try to get you to think about the structure of your ideas and the way in which you think about things. So Foucault is very much inspired by Nietzsche here. um, And we'll see that he invokes history a lot. I mean, the book we're reading is, uh, or going over is the history of sexuality. Um, but Foucault likes to give you lots of little uh, tidbits, I guess, like from history. Like he he loves giving you some obscure sources. And I guess one other thing I would say, actually, no, never mind. Let's just get into it. <laughs> um, so, oh, right. I was going to tell you what I like to say is like sort of Foucault's trick. So Foucault, like Nietzsche, likes to do a maneuver where he's like, okay, so here's a trend or here's a story or here's a convenient truth that you tell yourself about history or about your contemporary situation. And in fact, I'm going to show you why it's more the opposite of what you think. Nietzsche loved to do this in particular with what he called cause and effect. He liked to constantly tell you, you know, you think this one thing is the cause of this other thing, but really it's the other way around. Like an easy example would be like, you think that, you know, your slender diet is what gives you a long life when really it's your slow metabolism, or in other words, your possibility of having a long life that causes you to eat less. 
like it's like um just like a little inversion like where it's like you think this one thing is causing this other thing and really it's the other way around or you so a good example would be in the next thing we'll read by Foucault discipline and punish you think that our contemporary mode of punishing by like you know putting people in prison is more humane or is less evil even or um less an expression of power than uh, an execution or like a really violent execution when in fact it's the opposite Foucault would say so in this book Foucault is going to be exploring something at first called uh, the repressive hypothesis and I guess it's important to know that the history especially in France um, at the time psychoanalysis was a really you know hot way of thinking in France at the time and not necessarily strictly Freudian psychoanalysis one thing about the French is you know they just make everything crazy um, <laughs> but so I mean you have people like Lacan in particular is who I'm thinking of which we will not get into but um, anyway so in psychoanalysis there's this idea of repression Foucault is not necessarily in this book talking about that directly at the beginning but rather the the repressive hypothesis is sort of referring to this idea that at one point people were sexually liberated you can think of like the ancients like especially say like the ancient greeks like there's this idea that you know they had sex with everybody and then um into the middle ages although sex was under the scrutiny of christianity it was still talked about openly, even if in the form of like punishment or something. And then with the Victorians, uh, sex becomes a a crude topic or like, you know, there's this idea that we are more like prudish, more refined, more civilized sexually. And even that we have closed ourselves off to sexuality in a way that like the ancients weren't, that we have a way of talking about sexuality that, you know, amounts to ignoring it, I guess I would say. So Foucault is going to be criticizing this idea. Um, and I guess he writes, so the central issue then, and this is quoting Foucault, at least in this first instance, because this and by first instance, he's referring to part one or volume one of the history of sexuality, which is this very long uh, four part sort of work he did. It might even be considered his magnum opus. So the central issue is not to determine whether one says yes or no to sex, whether one formulates prohibitions or permissions, whether one asserts its importance or denies its effects, or whether one refines the words one uses to designate it, but to account for the fact that it is spoken about, to discover who does the speaking, the positions and viewpoints from which they speak, the institutions which prompt people to speak about it and which store and distribute the things that are said. What is at issue briefly is the overall discursive fact, the way in which sex is put into discourse. So he wants to employ a genealogical survey almost or investigation of the discursivity of sex, the way in which sex is put, not only put into discourse and and. I want to say something about um, Foucault's method here. It's not like he's saying that, you know, there's all these there's all this sex stuff and then we have developed a way of talking about it or like that we have uncovered a way of like uncovering, uh, say, like the desires and sexualities that have always been going on or something like that. He rather wants to think about the way in which in the last three centuries, we have amplified sexuality, we have uh, varied sexuality, we have um, multiplied even sexuality, and the way in which we have constructed these categories, which is not to say that they're any less real or more real. He's not concerned with that question, but just the fact that we recognize many more different types of sexualities and the way in which these sexualities have been talked about. So he wants to explore the way in which throughout history, 
and in particular in the last three centuries, sexuality has been talked about. And so he wants to say that it seems like at the beginning of the 17th century, sex is censored, which is to say that it's largely ignored. And in fact, he wants to say, he says there's a discursive explosion around and about sex. So I guess I'll give you uh, an early example that he that he provides, and maybe we can kind of talk about this example that I think is interesting. First, I want to actually I'll give two. First, I want to say that what is remarkable, and this is something he only touches on very briefly, is that when you read ancient philosophers or middle-aged philosophers, anytime they talk about sex, it's seen as very crude, like almost not worth talking about. It's not like, oh, this is like, you know, forbidden. We shouldn't be talking about this. But rather that like, you know, they'll be like, I'm so sorry I have to mention this base thing. You know, like it's not... <laughs> interesting it's boring even whereas today talking about sex is one of the most interesting like provocative like you know even um rebellious things you can do in a way mm -hmm. and so that i think is a remarkable fact that foucault wants to sort of investigate why why do we like talking about sex so much what happened how did sex go from being boring to being so interesting so he provides an example which is sort of looking at the movement from the middle ages to the like uh victorian ages like the 19th century in particular and the transformation of uh catholic confession which is a weird place to start but it's where he starts so he says that um in the 17th century, we see in people like Sanchez and um, Tamburini, uh, no, sorry, not in the 17th century. Sorry, these are the, these are middle age theologians and Sanchez and Tamburini that um, every little like action is supposed to be described. So like when you would go to confession, you would tell them positions. You would tell them number oh of goodness. times. You would tell them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was kind of, it sounds bizarre to do now. And actually, um, there's a trope of the uh, the person, the priest listening to confession masturbating. I wonder if that comes, <laughs> from, comes from this time. <laughs> but um, like that was the sort of thing you would tell them about. Like you would tell them your partners. You would tell them the number of times. You would tell them maybe like where you were, when it happened, the sort of positions. Like you would describe, you know, just what happened. And like that would be your atonement. Like these would be the sins that you would be describing. So there's a movement from that to a more like vague description, which um, might sound like a movement away from sex or something that, you know, make is emblematic of the way in which, you know, we're more civilized. We wouldn't tell the priest about like the positions, you know, that's not <laughs> that's ridiculous. Um, Can you imagine? <laughs> So, but Foucault kind of wants to say, I think that it's precisely these vague descriptions, which demand one to like discuss their desires and like to sort of bring out every unwholesome thought, like every lusting. So for the first time, all these things are put into words, Foucault wants to say. So before it was simpler, you know, like your sin was confined to the positions you did, like to your partners, like to the events. That was your sin. But there's a movement to where now the sin is like suddenly everywhere. Like a new wave regarding the nature of the self and the flesh is established. Like sexual desires everywhere. It's not just in the bedroom. And nothing makes this clearer, Foucault thinks, 
than the transformation of confession. So I want to borrow a, a quote from a confessional manual from the 17th century that Foucault uses. Um, so this is around like the advent of this new way of regarding sex. So the, the manual for confession says, examine diligently, therefore, all the faculties of your soul, memory, understanding, and will. Examine with precision all your senses as well. Examine, moreover, all your thoughts, every word you speak, and all your actions. Examine even unto your dreams to know if once awakened, you did not give them your, your consent. And finally, do not think that in so sensitive and perilous a matter as this, there is anything trivial or insignificant. And um, another sort of related source that Foucault gives us is from a 19th century scandalous like literature stylist named Liguori, which is, you know, tell everything, not only consummated acts, but all sex sensual touchings, all impure gazes, all obscene remarks, all consenting thoughts. So we see here that on the surface, it looks like we go from discussing sex to not discussing sex. But I think Foucault wants to say that this is rather like a diffusion and a multiplication and an expansion of the domain of sexuality. The The sexual nature of your being is moving or like, it, you know, throughout history has moved from being confined to these base acts that like everyone commits and like, you know, you describe those because you know their sins and that sort of thing to suddenly being like a, an aspect of the way you are, like a whole component of all these various different things that you do. And in particular, a new way of talking about all these things in confession is developed. And there's sort of like this, you know, chicken and egg sort of deal, which I don't know how fruitful it is to think. I think we, I'll, I'll describe that. Namely, the chicken and egg would be like, you know, are all these different desires coming around and then we're talking about them? Or are they coming around because we're talking about them? I think Foucault wants to say that neither. They're coming around is the same as our talking about them. We're giving them life and are talking about them. For the first time, these things are able to be recognized as what they are. And that's, you know, equivalent to their coming into being in a way. So there is, you know, an explosion in confession of the way in which sex is talked about. It's no longer just an action. It's a way in which uh, you think about things, all your little like, you know, intimations and all your little lustings and et cetera, et cetera, now have to be discussed, now have to be atoned for. So around this time, sex also became basically for the first time the subject of a rationality and not just in like medical literature, though we'll kind of get to that. So Sex was no longer just something to be ethically judged, to be approved of or condemned, to be laughed at, but now too something to be managed, prescribed, administered, and optimized. So Foucault gives us a few examples of this point. One point he wants to talk about is the emergence in uh, around the 18th century or 17th century of the concept of population. It's notable when you read ancient thinkers that they never talk about population. They talk about a people and the strength of a people and its resources, but the idea of the like strict number of people in a given area, not talked about. So the emergence of this concept is very interesting because Foucault thinks its population is not just a concept like that emerges innocently, but as something that has to be managed. And insofar as population has to be managed, so too does sex, if that makes any sense. And I mean, I think you even to some extent see this in abortion law today as a way of managing population because many wealthy people are concerned about the decline of the population, um, which is fucked up. But... <laughs> 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 Mic drop. <laughs> anyway, I mean it's it's horrifying to think about. I I mean I think in Don't addition to we started on this. I mean, I can go on about this forever. For I ages. mean, I think it's something relevant and I think on the one hand yeah. Have you seen The Handmaid's Tale at all? Did we talk about this? No. Listen, that show 
is basically it's like the I guess the idea is that it's in a futuristic society because they're concerned about people not having babies and like we're not growing the population. And so essentially America gets taken over by Gilead. You did tell me this. Yeah. In the yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it is just mind blowing. So basically if brief overstory for anybody listening that hasn't seen it. Essentially, people take in these handmaids and they rape them like together, like a husband and a wife will rape this handmaid and the wife holds down the handmaid and the husband, you know, does the thing and they make her have the baby and give the baby to them, even though it's her baby. Like, it's just the whole thing is mind blowing. And it's all because they wanted to increase the population. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I think when you think about abortion law today and who it affects most, it affects most people who are not wealthy, right? right? And which are also the people who are supposed to supply the labor force according to the wealthy people. So like if you're wealthy, obviously you can afford to go somewhere else to get an abortion. You'll find a way basically, right? Whereas if you're not, like you might be stuck and it, I think on the one hand is a way of securing a labor force. I think it's a way of keeping poor people in poverty, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's tons of messed up things about it. And I mean, I, I think some people are just like straight up moralists, like Christian moralists about it. But I don't think that that's why all these like gross Republicans are concerned about it, to be honest. Right. But uh, like another example that Foucault will gives, and this is something that we'll we'll talk about more and more. And it, Foucault's Foucault's crazy with this. He's gonna. I think a lot of what you read in Foucault is like you know generally agreeable, but this one is one that like I find very striking and hard to hard to think about. So maybe we can talk about it a little. Foucault loves to talk about the sexuality of children in this book, um, and in particular, he wants to talk about the way in which, because again, he's not he's not concerned with sexuality of children as such, but rather with the way that it is discussed and with the way in which it emerges in discourse. So Foucault talks about the structure of secondary schools and all their like prohibitions as themselves sort of constituting new accounts and forms of adolescent sexuality. So uh, some examples he'll talk about are like, you know, um, the separation of boys and girls bathrooms, the importance placed on puberty in separating kids from each other, the like dress codes implemented to like prevent children from like experiencing any sexuality. Like basically Foucault wants to say that all of these countless, countless innumerable devices and regimes and administration organizations put in place to prevent children from like being sexual beings at all is in fact what turns sex into them as like something secretive, something, you know, like powerful, something alluring, like that all of these things are not just like counterproductive, because Foucault wants to say they're not counterproductive. Their whole purpose is, again, part of this discursive explosion of sex that it's not like, you know, I think he doesn't want to say anything about like the intentions that the people putting these things in place have in mind, but rather just sort of looking at what is going on here. And um, I, I mean, we'll get we'll get more into to this this stuff about school later. But Foucault also gives an example, which I think is a weird example and is difficult for me to think about. Um, he talks about the story of a farmhand and curdled milk. So basically, I guess there's this farmhand who is in he's basically like a peasant. Um, I don't remember the time period that this is happening in. Um, but uh, he lives in like a pastoral sort of like agricultural community, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a game, a French, it's French, I guess, called curdled milk, which basically just refers to when 
an older farmhand has a younger girl, unspecified age, pleasure him in some way. I don't know whether, you know, we're talking about like Felatio or like anything with like the hand or whatever. I don't know. It's not specified. But basically, this Foucault wants to say used to just be not necessarily innocent. It's not about whether or not it was innocent, but sort of he calls it like a simple bucolic pleasure, like something that was not necessarily seen as evil or good or bad or whatever. And he wants to talk about uh, this case where there's this one farmhand who is engaging in this curdled milk stuff. And then afterwards, uh, for the first time in like this community, he was brought you know, to this girl's parents. Then he was brought to the mayor. He was brought to the police. Then he was brought to a judge. Then he was brought to a doctor. And then he was brought to two experts studying, quote, perverted psychology. And then they wrote a report and had it published. So Foucault writes, what is significant about this story? The pettiness of it all. The fact that this everyday occurrence in the life of village sexuality, these inconsequential bucolic pleasures could become from a certain time the object not only of collective intolerance, but of a judicial action, a medical intervention, a careful clinical examination, and an entire theoretical elaboration. So again, Foucault wants to say here that here it's not like we suddenly are more virtuous or more ethical, but rather that we are suddenly so much more preoccupied with sex. We are talking about sex much more in this case, and not just like discussing it, but sex is being analyzed, it's being investigated, it's being expanded, like something sort of trivial or just like, I mean, I think like maybe maybe a way of getting at like what Foucault is talking about is like, imagine if suddenly like going, uh, going to the bathroom, like sitting down or something is suddenly seen as like, you know, immoral or something and like now like you know you're being like investigated you have to go to a therapist for it, like all this sort of stuff and it, like it's just like what well, is going i think on? i'm lost for a second so is this example is this talking about like an older man with like a very like a young child or are we just talking about like a, oh like yeah an age gap no 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 he's talking about a child and he's why this he is so messed up to think about right <laughs> so he doesn't understand why it's going through like the judicial system well he wants to say and this is what's interesting i think is that it wasn't always the case that it would yeah, because people didn't talk about it. And it wasn't seen like, as a problem. Gosh, well, thank goodness the times have changed. Well, but I think what he wants to say is that, and this is what's difficult about Foucault is because I agree with you. And I think now that we're in this situation, there's, you know, it's obviously evil what's going on. But I think what he wants to say is that we have perverted the whole situation more so now than before. That right. So I guess he's talking about like how it has changed over time and just that now all of a sudden it's bad and it's this whole big thing, whereas before it wasn't. Is that what you mean? Well, not only that, but I think he wants to say that all of these measures further expand the sexuality of children or of the farmhand that it wasn't necessarily this like sinful it was like that there's a whole like new way of talking about and thinking about this event um and i think that this is why the genealogical method is helpful because i think for us it's simply impossible to think that there's nothing wrong with this or like to right. accept that like no it's you know like no this is wrong and that's clear but the genealogical method can show us that through investigating history it wasn't people didn't always approach it in this way and foucault is interested in the way in which people began he's he's interested in this discursive explosion as he calls it uh in the ways in which sexuality was uh expanded and i mean i think one thing that's important to think about is i don't know the extent to which this is true and i'm no foucault expert but in foucault's time homosexuality was much more wrong than it is today today we are totally okay with saying that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality in foucault's time foucault was a pervert he was lumped together with all of the perverts like you know whether it's incest whether it's bestiality whether it's pedophilia homosexuality all lumped in the same category back then right oh 
So I think Foucault is maybe a little bit more sympathetic towards understanding that these perversions are perversions only insofar as like they're subjected to all of these various like judicial systems, medical examinations, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think- that makes a little bit more sense. Like he's thinking, well, if he's in the same category, then he's thinking, is is he going to have to go, you know, in front of a judge and make a big production about his life because he's gay? Right. Um, and I and in general, like, yeah, just the way that Foucault talks about <laughs> like the sexuality of children makes me very uncomfortable. Um, and I think that I mean, he's a philosopher in a way he has like a right to talk about anything like this. But I think that uh, it's almost like deceptive because when he talks about other perversions, like we're just like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like, who cares if someone's gay? But when he talks about this stuff, it's always like, what the heck, Foucault? But like another example he'll give is that um, he wants to say that historically children were involved in like sexual discussions at the dinner table. Like sex was like sex jokes and that sort of thing were just like something everybody, including kids, laughed at. Like it wasn't this whole production. Whereas today, like all of that sort of conversation is very much censored around children. And I think that, I think that when he's talking about children, I don't think he's talking about like five-year-olds. I think he's mostly talking about maybe like, you know, like 14-year-olds sort of deal. I don't know, even if for Foucault, that difference is there. I don't think he's talking about like little, little kids. I think he's talking about like, honestly, frankly, the sort of people who are like masturbating are like aware of this sort of stuff, but like are still being like censored, if that makes any sense. Um, Yeah, like I think he's probably talking about like young adults, like who are, I mean, that would make a little bit more sense. Well, I also think if you think about like the history, like a 14 year old, like 600 years ago was an adult, like a 14 year old was having a family, was raising kids, like et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there's a whole other investigation that like someone like Foucault might want to do on like adulthood and on like what constitutes adulthood and when did the idea of adulthood change? How did the idea of adulthood change? Et cetera, et cetera. And so the last thing in this first section that Foucault wants to talk about is sort of the advent of many like disparate categories of uh, perversion. So one of the ones that I want to talk about is the homosexual. For the listeners who couldn't tell from my, you know, so-called gay accent, I'm a homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> gay accent, stop. <laughs> um, and Foucault is often accredited as being the first sort of guy to come up with the, the following idea. And this idea is honestly frustrating for me, and I, I'm sort of suspicious of it. But um, it's this idea that in history, there was no such thing as the homosexual. So if you ask, is Socrates a homosexual? That's a tough question. And maybe a, a misguided question, Foucault will say, because the idea of the homosexual is only possible recently, before sodomy was discussed, the act of anal sex, and in particular between two men, was discussed at length. And that was a sin. And we can kind of see this in like what we were talking about at the very beginning with confession. Like if you went to confession, you wouldn't say like, oh, I was desiring for a man, but rather like, oh, I did sodomy. You know, so like the act itself was under the microscope. The act itself was what was discussed, but not necessarily the uh, person not necessarily like like the the sexuality was not necessarily yeah an aspect of a person it didn't permeate every way of their life it wasn't like oh that's a homosexual walking to the store like that wouldn't make any sense to say like you only say like oh it's homosexual to have sex with a man <laughs> you know <laughs> but yeah. like there was no such thing as the homosexual person i don't know that i agree with this i think this is overstated and i'm annoyed about the extent to which um it's treated almost as axiomatic especially i went to and I, I don't mean this as a humble brag, but just like matter of factly, I went to like this like elite university where everybody had to read Foucault. And, 
you know, if you ever like even just like ingest would be like, you know, like, oh, like is Dante talking about gay people in that circle of hell over there? And like, the, no, there's no such thing as gay before the year 1786, you know, <laughs> like um, I I don't know. I, I think the I think this is overblown. I think what Foucault is saying is correct and that it's interesting to investigate the way in which homosexuality and the discussion around it has morphed and has become something maybe like an identity or something like an aspect of what someone is, whereas before it used to, you know, to define like certain sorts of actions. But I also think that you see in ancient literature, people talk about other people like in a way that is maybe not necessarily the same as today, but it's sort of similar, you know, so like it might be said of Socrates, well, like Socrates, you know, he has a preference for men, <laughs> like he's often going after men or like Socrates loves boys. Um, actually, the volume two of A History of Sexuality is all about sexuality in ancient Greece because it's very interesting. Do you know anything about sexuality in ancient Greece? No. So essentially, um, I wouldn't say that it was normalized, but in the times of Plato, if you were wealthy, the very standard procedure would be something that is often referred to as pederasty, where as you started to come of age of a boy as a boy, and the Greeks described this as like, you know, basically like right before you start getting pubic hair to the time when you first start getting pubic hair, you would be courted by an adult man. And this adult man, I mean, today we'd call it grooming, but for the for the Greeks, I mean, it's, it's not true to say that the Greeks didn't see any problem with this. It was more complicated. Some people thought there was problems. Some people thought there wasn't. But the problems that people thought there was with this were mostly thinking like, oh, you know, you're following your base desires. You are succumbing to the pleasures. Like they weren't concerned about like harming anyone in this per se. They might have been concerned about uh, the effect that like like being loved could have on someone. But basically, this was a fairly like standard procedure where older men would court younger boys. And then otherwise, though, older men would, you know, have wives and like children and that sort of thing. Like they were otherwise having sex with women, but with like, it was almost like a coming of age sort of thing. I don't know. It's a totally different sort of sexuality. But basically, every man found other men beautiful. And like men were objects of beauty, sort of like the way that women are objects of beauty today, which is why you see so many statues of naked men. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, he he likes to write about that uh, in, in volume two. And I mean, he wants to say that there's this idea that, you know, the Greeks were so sexually liberated, but that's not necessarily true. And like, it's more complicated than like, you know, the simple story that even I gave is, but anyway, um, but even in ancient Greece, there were people who had preferences for men more so than others. In addition to this, just this pederasty, Socrates, one of them, Socrates, noble, pe notable pederast. But I mean, Socrates also, uh, I mean, it's more complicated, I guess, because he's also trying to teach them philosophy. And that's like mostly what he's concerned with. But I was actually just just reading the Alcibiades where where Socrates is like uh you know super freaking out when um or no sorry the Charmides which is like maybe the most erotic of uh the dialogues by Plato I've ever read where like this young guy Charmides comes up to Plato and Plato or to Socrates and like the way Plato writes about it he's like totally geeking out he sees under his <laughs> tunic it's so scandalous um, <laughs> <laughs> so scandalous Anyway, um, another another aspect of the advent of categories of perversion that Foucault likes to talk about is the medicalization of sexuality. And Foucault is obsessed with this idea of medicalization. He even writes a whole um, a whole book on psychology and on the advent of psychology and on the medicalization of, of psychology. Foucault is sort of suspicious about the power dynamics of sexuality or of medicalization in general, because I think Foucault wants to say that in 
the doctor patient relationship and in even the medicine subject like more generalized relationship there's an there is a power imbalance like the doctor has authority over the patient the doctor uh not just in like oh i tell you to do this and you should do it but also in like i am examining you i am categorizing you i am looking at you and writing information about you down i am recording you like you are the object of my of my study and foucault is suspicious or at least curious about about that sort of power dynamic. And I think he also wants to say that medicine, especially in the last 300 years, has had a way of not just categorizing different things, but of creating new things. And so an example of this is like, he he likes to talk about the medicalization of, say, perversion of all the sexual deviance and the way in which medicine distinguishes between the fetishist and the homosexual and the lesbian and the pedophile and the liberty and like all these different categories for understanding uh, various disparate sexualities, Foucault thinks this sort of thing really begins happening in the medicalization of sexuality. And I think today, I mean, you even see this, I think even just in, in the, I think you see this less than in Foucault's time. I think uh, doctors are less concerned these days with categorizing different types of sexualities. I, I mean, but uh, Foucault does talk about mental illness, and I think he's very suspicious of the way in which we have categorized mental illness, and he thinks that it could be harmful for people. Um, he's he's suspicious of like the the dispersion of these categories and the power dynamics involved in them. But um, anyway, he also wants to talk about the saturation of sexuality, and um, I want to read kind of a lengthy quote uh, that he gives, and then I want to talk about what he says here. Um, so he says, this is the way things worked in the case of the family, or rather the household, with parents, children, and in some instances, servants. Was the 19th century family really a mono monogamic and conjugal cell? Perhaps to a certain extent. But it was also a network of pleasures and powers linked together at multiple points and according to transformable relationships. The separation of grown-ups and children. The polarity established between the parents' bedroom and that of the children. It became routine in the course of the century when working class house housing construction bleh, when working class housing construction was taken. Meaning, uh, the bedrooms of children and parents were not always separated, but around you know this you know so-called explosion of sexual discursivity, this separation transpires. The relative segregation of boys and girls, the strict instructions as to the care of nursing infants, maternal breastfeeding and hygiene, the attention focused on infantile sexuality, the supposed dangers of masturbation, the importance attached to puberty, the methods of surveillance suggested to parents, the exhortations, secrets, and fears, the presence, both valued and feared, of servants. All this made the family, even when brought down to its smallest dimensions, a complicated network saturated with multiple fragmentary and mobile sexualities. To reduce them to the conjugal relationship and then to protect project the latter in the form of a forbidden desire onto the children cannot account for this apparatus which, in relation to these sexualities, was less a principle of inhibition than an inciting and multiplying mechanism. Educational or psychiatric institutions with their large populations, their hierarchies, their spatial arrangements, their surveillance systems constituted alongside the family another way of distributing the interplay of powers and pleasures, but they too delineated areas of extreme sexual saturation, with privileged spaces or rituals such as the classroom, the dormitory, the visit, and the consultation. The forms of non-conjugal, non-monogamous sexuality were drawn there and established. So I think one of the things he's talking about here is that there's this idea that um, on the one hand, you have the uh, sort of almost like nuclear family unit that 
is itself like not sexual. And on the other hand, there is like maybe thought that there's like this like sin or like this like thing you ought not to do, which is like to like think about any sort of like sexual dynamics between members of a family. And Foucault wants to say that it's not like each individual family member secretly has some like sexual desires for the others, but rather that the whole way that things are set up makes possible something like an amplification of like a sort of like perversion. Like for instance, the separation of the family or of like family members' bedrooms to turn the bedroom into sort of like the secret locus of like masturbation or sex or something like that. Like it makes sex suddenly become like secret. And like um, another thing would be, uh, what else does he talk about here? Uh, he talks about the relation between like parents and servants, which is like, I think something that or between children and servants, which is I think something that we don't necessarily, I mean, I have no experience with this. I never had servants. No. Uh, <laughs> But even like he talked about the relative segregation of boys and girls. And I think that that's something you see very often. Like, I think it's maybe worth thinking about why do why is it sort of customary for boys and girls to have separate bedrooms or like say you have like six kids and you have like three boys three girls like i think if you have two bedrooms you're going to put all the girls and all the boys together and right. he's wondering why why do we do that and i think another or not even just why do we do that but what effect does that have what what is going on there and um, how does that how is this involved in a discourse of sexuality and i think another thing that you might hear is like sort of standard is like well you know i didn't separate my boys and girls children or like you know i let my my children you know like i don't know like play in the bathtub with like other children or something like that until they hit a certain age and in particular until they start like approaching the age of puberty and then it's like okay you can no longer be doing that sort of thing. And I think that's what Foucault is maybe talking about when he talks about like the obsession with puberty as sort of like suddenly like someone goes from being like asexual to suddenly having sexuality. And I think he's suspicious of not just like that idea. I don't think he wants to say people are sexual all along, but how are we constituting a sexuality in that case? And I think if you compare it to the farmhand and that whole situation with the curdled milk situation, I think that you can see that I think Foucault wants to say in the curdled milk farmhand affair, there is not such a strict expression of sexuality. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been thinking this whole time. Um, I do think it's interesting because it is it kind of reminds me of like alcohol almost like how in America we have so many underage drinking and like so much like that because it's so illegal and you can't get it. Whereas in other countries, it's like, you know, you're drinking a beer at 16 and it's not as common for people to have all of these incidents and get so intoxicated that, you know, they have all these issues because it's just available. And so I've been thinking about it because it is true. It's like we make sex or even just sexuality like this big topic that it's like if you talk about it, it's like and you get caught, it's bad or, you know, there's like negativity associated with it. Um, and so I do kind of wonder if like there wouldn't be so much shame around it if it wouldn't be um as difficult to talk about almost or if there wouldn't be so many of it. And it is interesting, like, you know, obviously my daughter um, is five and then her friend that she's grown up with, like we've literally known them since they were born, um, is six and they used to take baths together, but yeah, we've stopped doing that. I think it's like we stopped doing it when they were aware that they were different. Um, was the, the time, you know, we just decided yeah. that like, okay, like they know that they have different parts and we, we're not ready to discuss this. So like, we're just not even going to do it. Um, but it is interesting to think about because 
at what age is it appropriate to discuss these things and who says it's appropriate or not appropriate. And like, it's just interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I want to be clear and I, I think you like already know this, but uh, I don't think like Foucault is giving any sort of like recommendations for parenting. Like, I, I mean, I think he's more like concerned about like with why is what is right? How do what is right become what is right? right. If that makes any sense. Right. Like, no, I, I mean, I, that's, that's true for everything. Like in just in life, like it's like, who decided this? Like who decided <laughs> that this is like what's appropriate or what's not, or what this is right and this is wrong. I mean, it's just, it, it is an interesting topic. Yeah. And I think like also like, you, you said something which I thought was really interesting, which is that like sex is hard to talk about or like something not talked about. And I think Foucault wants to say that that sort of like selective silence is just as much a way of putting sex into discourse as like talking about it freely or like even maybe is more more effective at putting it into discourse because we go through so many lengths, Foucault wants to say, to segregate sex in a way, which is to say that we like categorize it and reify it and make it into more than maybe what it is like and i think like if you think about the early the first thing we talked about with like just the confession if you think about sex just in terms of its acts it's not that big of a deal like it would right. sort of just be like you you could describe going to the bathroom in the same way or like you know right. taking a shower or whatever like there are many like it's not that crazy of a thing that goes on or whatever but right the status that it has in our discourse is like this like crazy complicated like I know it's so it's so interesting because it's just like exactly like it's I think about this often I'm like what is the big deal because now you know it's talked about a lot more freely and like there's so many podcasts and people just talk about it and it's less taboo like I feel like before like even just 10 years ago if you not even 10 probably even just like five years ago if like we wanted to have girl talk and talk about sex, like you almost had to like quiet your voices and like make sure nobody heard you. Whereas now it's still not like we're out here just like screaming about it, but you're not screaming about anything. <laughs> like You're not yeah. out here just like, you know, being obnoxious, but it's definitely just not as shameful. Um, but I do think there is still like such a stigma that you should only have this many sexual partners or once you reach this number, you're like, you know, extra sexually active or you're like a whore or whatever. It's like, or even a man whore, like men having sex with too many women. But it's like, again, it's kind of like, who decides? Like, who says like, oh, if you hit this number, you're like, who decides the number? And like, it's just, it's weird. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think uh, Foucault during his time, I think, yeah, like it was a very different time in terms of sexuality, like the, like, I think he's writing this mostly in the 60s slash 70s. And like, I think this was sort of like the very, very beginnings of like a sex positivity sort of thing. Like, this is the first time I think that, I don't know, like you imagine, say, like situations like Woodstock and like the hippies and like all that sort of stuff. Like, I think people were trying to uh, ex like trying to de-demonize or like undemonize sex in a way. Um, right. And I think today, like it's often even, I think even though like, I'm, I'd be curious to see what Foucault would say about say like sex positivity as we talk about it today, because I think, I think we still associate it very much with health. And Foucault is in general, very suspicious of this idea of health and how we, and how we talk about health, because I think a good example would be like, you know, you might be like, well, you know, having sex is perfectly healthy <laughs> is like a, is like something that like someone might say or like that you might hear and you'd be like, yeah, you're right. And like, I think like when you hear that something is healthy, this is a, a great like this. This is like enough. This is all you need for you to be like, yeah, and therefore it's not so bad. Uh, I right. actually I read something recently, which I thought was kind of funny. It was someone it was like an opinion piece um, where someone was like, I think in a, not even in a Foucault way, but maybe even more in a Nietzsche way, just being like the thing about when we they were they were challenging the extent to which we justify things by saying that like we do this to be healthy for ourselves like an example he was 
saying is that like, you know, if a friend is in need or something and there's a way of talking with your friend or a way of justifying a certain way of behaving with a friend where you say something like, you know, I am not mentally healthy enough to deal with this right now or dealing with this would be bad for my mental health and I have to put myself first, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we have ways of talking about that, like talking like that. And I think in general, I tend to agree with that. And I think like, I'm not like, you know, immune to the ethics of our time. But this person brought up a point which I thought was very challenging to me and which I've sort of been trying to think about more, which is like, are we just using that to justify being assholes? Like, (laughs) I think his point is like, God forbid you like put yourself in a bad position to help someone out. (laughs) Or like, God forbid you like sacrifice something to help someone. Well, I think that it, I think it comes down to if you're being authentic because the thing is is that i don't know that i've ever like if somebody comes to me and they say um you know they they're struggling with this or they're having a rough time or just whatever the case they need advice you know whatever the case they just need to vent whatever it is um i don't know that i've ever felt that i wasn't in a place to be able to help them in the best way that i can so i think it really just comes down to being authentic and like if you genuinely aren't in a place to be able to offer that help then yeah I think that you need to say, I'm not, you know, my advice might actually hurt you right now because I have such a jaded opinion on the world that I can't possibly (laughs) give you advice. Um, But I think the problem is, is that people use that excuse because we're in such an age that our mental health is important and it should be. And that's great. But you're right. I think people use that as an excuse. And that's the, that's, I think where the issue is. It's like, if you just don't feel like it, just say you don't feel like it. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's better to just be honest than to be like, oh, well, my mental health is suffering because then you're kind of negating it. And you're kind of like lessening the significance of it. I feel like, you know, you're kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're kind of like dulling it almost and, you know, taking away the importance of it. Anyway, my point is that I think that if you're being honest and you're being truthful and that you really can't, you know, then I think that's fine. I think the issue is that it's a good out. You know, nobody questions it. Like who, if I say to you, Brandon, I can't help you with that right now. My mental health is struggling. You're not going to be like, well, Amanda, like I really, like you're not going to, you're just going to say, okay. Like, well, yeah, because be you like, like don't yeah. want to like, you know, God right. said, like I ask you to do something. Right. Unhealthy. And I mean, I think, I think like another example of this that I was sort of thinking about is the way in which we use the term toxicity. I think mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think this is related to our, our understanding of health, like something that's toxic is like a poison, like it's bad for your health, you know, and I think we talk about like, a toxic friend. And I think that you know, the toxic friend, the concept of a toxic friend is something that my whole life, I feel like I've been like, yeah, you know, like F a toxic friend, like get rid of that, you know, like cut it off like a lesion or like, you know, expunge (laughs) it, vomit it out like you would a poison, you know, (laughs) like, yeah, um but i do think that maybe that's not necessary like i don't know like i'm just trying to think about like you know through history like i think obviously you know you can't it's hard to make a blanket statement here like if my friend kyle who i've known since i was an infant is like being a toxic friend for a while i'm not necessarily gonna like drop him just because he's being toxic you know (laughs) but right well i think it comes down to too is like defining toxic and i think toxic has different meanings for each person why these buzzwords and these terms are like really difficult and even the term like gaslighting people misuse all the time and I want to be like listen that's not being gaslit like they might be 
manipulative and they might be toxic, but they're not gaslighting you. Anyway, I could go on a tangent about that too, but back to your friend, like, right. And I think that's you knowing that this isn't who you've known Kyle for what, how old are you guys now? 20, you know, 23 24. years. Yeah. yeah. So it's like you have 23 years of experience with him to know that this is not who he is to his core. And so you're just going to, you know, kind of ride with it and help him out as best you can during this toxic phase of his life or whatever until, you know, he comes out of it because you have enough history to know that he's probably going to come out of this and this isn't who he is. I think the issue is when you don't have that history and it's like, say, a new friend or, you know, relatively new and you're just kind of like, um, is this like, this is who this person is? Like, you know, I'm just just not sure. <laughs> like, you know, if I want to put this in my life. Yeah. And I think like you also see this with um, with terms like draining. I think there's an idea of like, even like say a stranger, if I see a stranger and they need my help, I think there's a way of justifying not helping them by saying like, you know, that's just like too draining. Like, I can't sit here and listen to your story. Like, I can't, you know, I just like either I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think this person is saying, and I think I tend to agree with this, and I'm trying to be like more suspicious of myself with this, that we are using language like healthy and draining and toxic uh, to be selfish, basically, to like justify yeah. selfishness. Yes. And I think that, yeah, I'm really trying to to challenge myself to not be so selfish with that. And at least if I'm going to be selfish to recognize it as something as I'm being selfish, like I'm, right. I'm not, I'm not making an excuse for myself. It's not about yes. whether this is healthy. Now, of course, like, and I think like what you said, like, there are situations when like, if someone is being manipulative, if someone is like being a terrible person to you, like, you don't have to deal with that. I'm not saying deal with everything. But like, when it comes to like helping people, and I think, an example of this would even be like, if someone is like depressed, I think it's really hard to be a friend of someone who's depressed, because you feel like you're not making any progress, you feel like you're supposed to be there to help them, like you're supposed to, you know, maybe like you have a deep, long conversation, and like, they're starting, they, you know, like, they're feeling a little uplifted, but because they're depressed, like, that doesn't really make that much of a difference. And like, it can be, you know, so called like draining to be friends with someone who's depressed. And I think like, maybe though, like, it's also the case that like, that's the time when that person needs you most. And like, it right. doesn't have to feel nice for you to be their friend. Like it doesn't, right. not everything has to feel so good for you. And I think we like are, I think like we're, we're sort of these days like inclined and even like, you know, recommended to sort of think of things and just in terms of like, well, what is like good for me and what is like not, and right. like not worrying about anyone else. That is really interesting. To, like, I haven't thought about it in that way because it is true. It's like we are in, and again, some of the, the thing, the problem is that I feel like, and this makes sense for me especially but like I feel like even as a society, a society with these kinds of things it's like we're all or nothing it's like okay we're gonna say now that no is an answer no is a response you don't need to say no I can't I'm so sorry I have this like no is an answer and like that's okay but then the thing is too is that you're not really thinking about like how that exactly how that impacts the other person on the receiving end of that like and I think it really just depends on the situation. Like, I'm not just going to say to one of my really close friends, no, <laughs> and like not give, like not offer any explanation. Or, <laughs> like, you know, that, that'd be crazy. Like, I'm not just going to, like, so they're going to ask me to go to dinner. I'm just going to say no. Like, no, I'm going to explain that, like, no, I can't do that. Yeah, I you want to hang out sometime like, in the future? No. <laughs> right. Like, no, like, I'm not going to say that. But that's, that's what, like, society is telling us now. Like, you can, which is, again, good. It's just that the thing is, is that you have to use common sense and, like, use context. And, like, I feel like that's where we kind of struggle as humans is because it is hard now to like the random stranger on the street that asks you to go on a walk with them with their dog you can just say no because you're not like you're not honestly you're not worried about what they're gonna say or think because you're never gonna see them again <laughs> you know you're just kind of like no but with your friendships I feel like you and the people in your life you have to nurture those relationships yeah you know, to an yeah. extent no and I mean I think I've been reading too much Plato I've, I've been saying that I feel like during all of our things because I feel like I'm inclined to think like even if I don't see them ever again 
maybe I, I'm for the first time in my life, I'm starting to think of things in terms of what is right. Growing up around high school, you know, I quickly felt like I'm smart enough to figure out what's right and what isn't. I'm going to do my own calculus every time. But I, Plato is sort of convincing me that like, no, like, <laughs> it is important to think about what is right. It is important to do the right thing and like to not make like excuses for myself. Like, and like maybe listening to this person who is distressed Maybe I do think that's right. Even if I never see them again, even if it's bad for me, even if I feel bad, maybe I do think that that's the right thing to do. And that's why that's what's like difficult for me. I think if they're being like scary, that's another thing. Like, you know, but like right. if they're just like distressed or something like and I mean, I think I experienced this a lot when I was in Chicago and there were a few different homeless people who I chatted with extensively because basically every time they were just kind of telling me about like their woes and just like venting to me about like things they had experienced. And like, I just sort of like, I didn't, I didn't necessarily like engage with them as much as maybe I could have or whatever, but I also didn't like shoo them away either. And yeah, I think part of that is growing up in a place where I'm not in a city. I'm not used to just like ignoring people or treating people like they're not people. Right. (laughs) I think it is just like we always say, and with everything in life, it's just about balance. And I think it's about, again, just being authentic and being true to yourself. And like, if you really are having a rough time and you actually like that is going to drain your battery by trying to like if it's actually going to be a detriment to your mental health then like yeah you need to say that but if it's just that you don't feel like it either just be honest and say you don't feel like it or just suck it up and listen I think like really like ultimately that's for me how you find the balance like yeah I'm gonna do this even though I don't feel like doing it because I know I can or I'm going to be honest and tell you that I just don't feel like doing that because like the second we start like act like using our mental health as an excuse when it's not actually happening is the time that we're kind of losing all credibility. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like I'm also tempted to think though, like even if it does drain my battery, why is my battery the most important battery? Listen, you can't be watering people if you don't have any water in your cup. I'm just saying. That's a a fun one. I haven't heard that. I I just made that up on the fly. I have no water in my cup. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. I have no water. I cannot give you any more. Like, I don't have enough. And I I just think that if you build yourself up enough and, you, you know, you have the mental capacity and the strength, then yeah, of course you should help people. But if you don't have it to give, then I mean it doesn't need to be rude you just have to be like listen I'm struggling too can we struggle together like I, I mean I don't know <laughs> yeah. yeah um so anything else you want to say about him we're going no I think the next time, time we'll go over uh Foucault has like a lengthy thing about the science of sex which I don't necessarily actually want to go over I want to go over discipline and punish next which is my favorite book by by Foucault okay and I remember what I wanted to say at the beginning I was going to say um we have an email it's philosophicalpodcast at gmail.com and if you want to like hear about any authors or books or you just have thoughts or opinions like we'd love to hear from you um so yeah send us an email leave us a review whatever yeah (laughs) next time i'll say it at the beginning because then you know people can yeah next time we'll say it at the beginning um but yeah so next time we'll go over prisons uh foucault famously you know says like oh you know everything is a prison like that's how people interpret it i don't think that's really what he says but um yeah it's uh it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think Foucault wants to say that the prison is maybe less humane or like is maybe a more extreme expression of power than the violent execution. And so we'll start the next episode by going over the story of someone who in vivid detail is quartered, which means his uh, limbs are all attached to ropes, which are attached to horses, and then they run. So. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's how we'll start the next episode. Lord. Can't wait. (laughs) 
All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. (laughs)